0: Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 21 or turn on the book of Acts chapter 21. As the case may be, I do have it on the insert old-fashioned style insert on paper. So you can look there if you'd like with an outline there for you. Now let's become reoriented about where we are in the book of Acts. The whole of the book of Acts really covers about 35 years of history from the time Jesus ascends in approximately 33 A.D. and before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, so before 70 A.D. So in that time span. The early chapters of Acts up to chapter 9 cover just a four-year period. We meet Saul of Tarsus around that time. Um, So you have just a few years and then the rest, from the time we meet Saul who becomes Paul, he's going on these missionary journeys and we are at the end of his third missionary journey. So we're into the mid to late 50s AD and um, he is about to go to Jerusalem which will then take him to Rome. And the rest of his days after this episode we're reading of, they're spent in prison or under house arrest in confinement. Um, he is not able to travel around and do missions. Now, he has many diatribes and interactions and opportunities to write letters. So, ministry doesn't stop, um, but it changes. So, he's at the end of his third missionary journey. He's just left Ephesus, where he gave that great exhortation to the Ephesian elders. Now, he's about to take an arduous journey back to Jerusalem. He is convinced and has been convinced for a long time. Um, As early as the beginning of his third missionary journey, he says outright that he needs to go back to Jerusalem and maybe to Rome eventually. Um, That's his idea, and he's pursuing that plan. It makes strategic sense for the kingdom. He wants to go back after several years of absence from Jerusalem to once again witness to the Jews, check up on where the churches are, and see that place, which is a beachhead for the gospel ministry going forward, see it bolstered and have opportunity to give answers as well and maybe go on from there. But he was also totally willing and ready to die if that's, that was God's will. And so he's pursuing God's will. He believes it leading him to Jerusalem. But his disciples, the ones who love him and care for him and want him to be around, they don't see it that way. So we have before us a bit of a tug, a bit of a process of wrestling with God's will, a period of discernment to know what it is that Paul should do. And so we'll follow this, and we'll also follow, follow this as a way to consider decisions we make that are difficult, that are strained, that involve some wrestling to discern what it is that would honor God the most. Let's follow now as I read. I pick up in Acts 21. I'll read the first 16 verses of this 21st chapter, remembering the context just leaving the Ephesian church, where he had spent three years in ministry. This is God's holy word. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Please join me as I lead us in prayer. Father, please give us aid by your Spirit in understanding your Holy Word, in applying it. We thank you for this inspired record of the early church and the ministry of Paul in particular. We ask for your wisdom to see all there is for us to see, and I pray this in the name of Christ, amen. Paul was faced with a very difficult decision, should he go to Jerusalem or not. He felt very compelled that he should. Yet his disciples had a different perspective. And so we observe this process of him determining finally to go to Jerusalem. We see what happens. And I believe it provides for us an example anyways. There's no formula in the scripture for exactly deciding God's will. Unless it's a sin issue, which we know God's will would not lead us there, there could be more than one right answer presenting itself. Certainly that's the case here. Paul feels very convicted. He feels guided by God in this respect to go to Jerusalem next, and he's moving that way. But along the way, there's these tugs and pulls against the idea from the disciples who love him and know him. You know, I was thinking about big decisions we have had to make in our lives as a family. All of you probably have multiple that you've made. You can think of them. They come back to you rather quickly. And I know the first one that we faced, Sherry and I anyways, uh, when we first started dating him thought the Lord was leading us to marriage. All the decisions, you know, you look back at that now and you don't think much of it. Here we are some 26 years later. That just was kind of a blip in the screen. But it doesn't take us long to remember all the discernment process we had to go through. All the challenges that presented us in discerning God's will. Now, don't get me wrong. um, It kind of went like this. So there's certain parts of it that were not hard to discern. Uh, One part, well, well, put it this way I was in my junior year in college halfway through that year and I had determined not that I would be a bachelor to the rapture like some of the Baptist folks say uh, but rather that I wasn't going to get married when I was in college I was going to wait till I got out go to seminary get ahead on things and then the Lord would show me who I should marry sometime in the future that's exactly how I felt and I was resolved about it halfway through my junior year Sherry, by that time, halfway through her freshman year, had already decided she was going to change majors, and it wouldn't be a major that Moody had. She was going to change from music to elementary ed. They didn't have it at that time at Moody. So she was already decided she was going to finish out that year and then go back home and go to one of the state schools. That's when we met. And all of a sudden, I didn't remember any of my resolve about not wanting to get married when I met her. Uh, And she, I will say, didn't have the same resolve either about not coming back. And so um, here we were, having met each other, felt like the Lord was, had definitely led us together. Pretty early on, we wanted to pursue the idea of preparing for marriage. We weren't determined about it, but we thought, definitely going to need at least another year to know each other. And if she goes back home right after this, how would we be able to pursue that and figure that out? Well, her parents were not on the same page with that decision and that timing. They liked the idea of her coming back and going to school there. And the idea of meeting some guy from New York who wasn't a Mennonite on top of that was challenging for them. And so uh, uh, a discussion ensued about our relationship. Uh, but it was finally agreed upon. She'd come back for another year. We weren't engaged at that point. We were truly testing God's will, trying to figure out what he was directing us to do. I was finishing my last year. She went through a second year, picked some classes that we knew would transfer should we decide to get married and she would eventually go back to school and, ha- and pick up where she left off? That kind of thing. We're talking all this out. We're 19 and 20 years old at this time. And so it, it, there was just lots of big decisions coming our way. So we asked people that knew us what they thought about the idea, what should we do going forward? And people were resoundingly encouraging about getting married and going into ministry. But there were different bits of counsel about the timing of it. Um, who would go to school because she still had two more years. I wanted to go right into seminary. We were discussing different plans. Where would I go to seminary? Where could I go where she could go to school? Where could she work? I mean, there were lots of decisions that I know are not on the level of the Apostle Paul going to Jerusalem. But most of our decisions are more like what I'm describing, and God cares about those just the same for your calling and your walk. And so we went through a process of discerning. We asked professors. We asked people that knew us. We asked our parents what they thought. Um, we talked about it. We prayed about it. Uh, we considered all the different kinds of options and all the decisions that loomed. Uh, they seemed very big to us. Her parents wanted us to not get married then and wait for a couple of years till she finished school. I could go go to seminary and then she would be done with school. And you know, it was easy for them to say, just be apart for two years and then pick up where you left off. Now, I kind of secretly think they're hoping that I would wear off. You know, like they, she wouldn't really like me anymore, and then they can move on from this guy. Now, don't get me wrong, they like me now, 26 years later, we're good. But at that time, there was those kinds of emotions and relational components. They're coming from one angle as a parent, and I'm coming from another. You, know, you just can feel all the possible um, bad choices we might make, or choices that could upset somebody. What is God's will? Let the will of the Lord be done. That's really what we want. We have these desires. We want to do this, this a certain way. Is it the right way? And so you enter into a discernment process, which is never alone. It's never just on your own. You're always seeking out the resources God places in your life to discern what his will is. And those decisions that we made were challenging for sure, but ultimately we made them and decided. I remember it was a bit of a Jacob and Laban sitting with her dad trying to talk about, okay, here's the deal. If I come and live in Kansas, I mean, that's a big one right there. I'm going to move to Kansas and I'll work for two years while Sherry goes to Wichita State and does her elementary ed degree. It was a bit of a compromise. We really want to get married, so if we can get married now, how about I just take two years off and work, and then she goes to school. And the beauty of that was is that her grandmother had left some money for tuition, so that would also be covered. So she would, we'd be able to pay for her school. I could earn some money for seminary, start getting ready those two years, and we would have that beginning to our marriage look like that. So it ended up coming into that where we all agreed that that made the most sense. And we got a lot of affirmation from her parents, my parents, other people that knew us. And it, we sensed that this was a good way to go. It was the will of the Lord. And so that's the angle we went. I couldn't believe I was in, I remember when I got married I'm standing in this Mennonite church in the middle of nowhere Kansas. It's 105 degrees. And I remember people bringing jello in for the reception. It was melting off of the plate. And the car that I bought, because I had almost no money, was from her aunt. And they, she said, well, the air conditioning doesn't work. Who cares? You don't need air conditioning. I'm from Buffalo. We don't have air conditioning there. 105 degrees, driving out with a tux and a wedding dress on. We were soaked before we got to the first stop sign. Anyways, that's my introduction to Kansas. And my thought was, this is. I want to be here as little as I can. So I'm going to get out of here in two years, and we are out of here. We're never coming back to Kansas after that. And here I am 22 years later, actually, in the ministry here. That process, though, we we do kind of laugh about it now, but it was not a laughing matter. When you're 1920 and you have this vision of what you think, you know, the, the things are supposed to look like, we needed a process, a discernment process to go through. We needed voices in our life to help us, guide us through. And I would say that everyone here has some big decision you're facing, but even smaller decisions should be handled very carefully, especially if you're in the Lord, if you trust Christ and you want him to be the priority in your life. Think about how you view those decisions. Is your attitude, let the will of God be done. May God's will be done in whatever it is that I choose to do. Many times in life, these decisions could have more than one right choice. There's not a sin problem. It's just you don't know which is the right or the best choice. Yes, there is God's will, but we don't always have clarity on exactly what it is. It could be a decision about a relationship. It could be one about a job, a promotion, a a different role. It could be about moving. It could be about a purchase you're going to make. It could be about a challenge or a problem you're facing. It could be about a child. It could be about a parent. The Bible doesn't give detailed formula answers to decide God's will. Mostly, it's a process of discernment where you're wrestling with the means that God gives you to discern or see clearly as he would have you see. The Bible doesn't present specifics, but it gives principles for us to observe. And I think when we watch Paul in his process, knowing how early in the book of Acts he wanted to go to Jerusalem and believed it was right, And then seeing what the disciples say and how they react, even being very careful to interpret the words Luke uses, that we'll see a process that he engages in. It's a bit of a wrestling with it. It takes time. It involves other people. It involves prayer. It involves a consideration of God's kingdom. All of that together leads him in a certain direction. And we certainly would not say that the book of Acts records something out of God's will or an error that was made or disobedience that was somehow showed. We know that Paul writes to Timothy later and says, I have followed the course. I have completed the race. So what he did proves to be what God's will was for him. So we can know that there's not a mistake made here by Paul or some disobedience shown, but rather we see a bit of the real life process that he goes through when deciding to go to Jerusalem. And I think that will help us and provide some guidance for our own lives. Let's look at the example of Paul here a bit and then extract from it some principles to conclude. Let's walk through the story. There's more there than you might think. I know they're bouncing around through ships and boats and places, but let's pay close close attention. Integrated into this story of him transitioning from Ephesus on towards Jerusalem, we have him interacting with Christians who know him and love him and care about him. So don't miss that. In fact, let's look first at the view that his disciples, those who came to Christ through his ministry and were growing because of his ministry, what is their view of his insistence on going to Jerusalem? Verse 1, when we had departed, or when we had parted from them, that's Ephesus, and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there, Patera. Now, before we go further, um, these are small voyages on small boats, and they're treacherous voyages with rocks and all sorts of um, crazy wind patterns, difficult, the Mediterranean is a difficult place to navigate. We know this from history and from archaeology, the amount of shipwrecks they have found in this area shows how perilous it was. Indeed, Paul said he endured many shipwrecks. You could see why. Um, This is a difficult place to sail. So we read in one verse a lot of labor, even though it doesn't say it so explicitly. Trips like this being successful should not be taken for granted. And here he is taking boats to make his way back up from Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, all the way around to where modern-day Israel is. Verse 2, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So he's looking for a charter that's going where he's going. He has to assess the safety of it. Will it work? And then he goes and sets sail. Remember, he can't Go on Google and look up Google reviews for ships and captains who are trustworthy and have sailed many times and have four stars for how comfortable it was in their boat. It's not like that. It's, bi- it's quite risky. They're going on cargo boats that are primarily moving goods and materials, and they're stowing on and, as extra payers. to, And, and so they're going to take more, as many of these people as they want, as many as they can fit. And so here he finds a ship crossing to Phoenicia, And they all went aboard. Notice it says, we went aboard. So Luke, the writer of Acts, is with him. So this is a group, a team of people with Paul, and Luke is one, and he's an eyewitness to this whole thing. We went aboard and set sail. Verse 3, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, the big island, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria. Now it's back up to the coastal area, and landed in Tyre, which is where modern-day Lebanon is. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. So there would be a little time while the cargo was being unloaded. So they decided to make the best of the time and seek out those believers who lived in Tyre. They had a moment to spend, always looking for opportunity to shepherd, we see here. Verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, a whole week. And through the Spirit, they, the disciples there, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now wait a minute, the Spirit tells him, so that's got to be God's will, Right? Well, read it closely now. They spend some time later when they get to their next destination. They spend quite a bit of time with Agabus and with Philip. And so this could simply mean that at this very moment, you shouldn't proceed on. And there should be a delay in this process. Not never go to Jerusalem, but not right now. But more likely, I believe the best way to understand this, they, like Agabus later, they see the future for Paul. very clearly they could tell he's going to die when he goes to Jerusalem. In some way, Jerusalem will be the end for him. And so they don't want him to go. They're saying, in the Spirit, we know what's going to happen to you there. And they're thinking from their perspective that we don't want to lose Paul. The church doesn't want to lose Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't go right away. He spends some time elsewhere before he gets there. But I think the real focus of the disciples, it's well-meaning and heartfelt, and it's true. He's going to probably die there, so don't go. So this is a bit of the wrestling Paul must go through. He's ready to die, but the people aren't ready for him to die. And so they're speaking honestly, they're spirit-filled people, they're Christians, and they're giving their perspective. And there's time being taken. There's a multitude of voices. There's the individual who feels called or believes that's the direction. There's a discernment process going on. In fact, that's what I want you to really lay hold of here in this process God typically works this way through a discernment process to give us clarity about his will and then the ability to carry it out. Verse 4, again, having sought out the disciples, we stayed for seven days and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So we know what the disciples are thinking. Verse 5, when our days there ended, were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city And notice what it says. And kneeling, kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Now I just... A brief side note, that's one of the reasons why, this is one of the reasons why we have kneelers in the church, to give people an opportunity to participate in the most biblically practiced posture for prayer. It's not about a formalism thing or a, or a traditional thing. It's because in the scriptures, the most times that we see people praying, they're changing their physical posture and they're often kneeling. Remember, Paul did the same thing with the Ephesian elders just a few verses before in the other chapter. He kneeled down and prayed with them. Now, they all kneel down together. It's a It's a confession of humility before the Lord that the Lord God is the one who controls all things. And we bow before him. We bow down in a vulnerable position before the Lord so that we can uh, accept his will, that he'll make his will plain. It's a beautiful physical action that helps us realize our place before the living God, that we should be humbled before him. And that's what we see the apostle and these followers of Christ do. Kneeling down, in verse 6, they said farewell to one another. And we went on board the ship and they returned home. So, the views of the disciple we see here very clearly, they don't think that Paul should go to Jerusalem. Paul takes this into account, no doubt. So, they go on their voyage to their next stop, verse 7, and we get the view of a local prophet. Now, remember, prophets and prophetesses are unique to this time frame, it's a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's need for this kind of revelation as the Bible's being finished and the apostles are still alive but are on the way to dying. And so you don't have the continued prophecies even accounted for in the later parts of the scriptures and certainly even in church history as you analyze it. This is very unique to this time frame and we should recognize it as such. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, remember him back in the beginning of Acts, one of the deacons who was ordained, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now notice, the the daughters don't give any comment on what Paul should do. I think that's important. Um, Sometimes what's not said is important, so they don't give their opinion or their perspective on Paul going to Jerusalem. Verse 10 says, while we were staying for many days, so it doesn't say how long, but they're there for a longer visit, a prophet named Agabus came from down, down from Judea. So they're heading up to Judea, Agabus is coming down, and he's got a word for them, a word for Paul. Now pay close attention to what he says. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt. He must have just kind of grabbed it off of Paul. This is, you can just imagine this, this, this person being um, physical and, Demonstr- uh, de- just de- demonstrating uh, what he sees about to happen. He took his belt, knowing Paul hadn't been listening at that point, no doubt, and bound his own feet in his hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus sees by the Holy Spirit now what will happen to Paul eventually. And by the way, this does happen to Paul. He's bound by the Jews and he eventually is sent to Rome in prison, or held captive. So the prophecy is right. He's not a false prophet. Does Agabus say he shouldn't go to Jerusalem? No. He just says what will happen when he gets there. But notice the response of the disciples around him, Luke included, the writer of the book of Acts, verse 12. When we heard this, what Agabus said, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So now we get the the feel that The people rightly understand what's at stake, and they're saying to Paul, You can't go. Paul's saying, The Lord is sending me there, even if it's unto death. Now, that's the part they're not grasping too much. It's almost like when Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Lord, do we really need to go back there? Um, And then he goes back there, and of course, he ends up being crucified, but that's part of the plan. Now, Paul has, you know, he's an apostle. You know, we're not, I, I know we're making some parallels, and we will recognize we're not apostles. However, you can see what's happening. These spirit-filled, well-meaning Christians who care about the growth of the church, they're not living in sin, they're not rebelling against God, they're saying, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Paul's saying, I should be going to Jerusalem. There's a discernment process and it's taking some time. And they're giving it to the Lord in prayer. It's not immediate and it takes uh, some elapsed time for them to come to some peace about what it is that Paul should do. What's Paul's view in all of this? hearing this probably he's probably heard multitude mul- a multitude of appeals to not go to Jerusalem verse 13 then paul answered what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart you you know what i believe god's will is in this regard for i am ready not only to be in prison but even to die in jerusalem for the name of the lord jesus now notice nobody says oh but the lord says you shouldn't go it, they're coming from the angle of you'll get killed if you go and he's saying i know i might but i'm still supposed to go i'm ready for that paul loves his disciples and values their perspective he, you're weeping you're weeping and breaking my heart he wants them to agree with his leading he wants to have clarity though about god's will by affirmation from the disciples but this challenge goes on but they're worried about him dying and he says if i die i die so be it i'm ready The people had their view in light of the desire to protect Paul, but God is the only one who really could protect Paul if it was his will. And earthly protection may not have been God's will for Paul any longer. All of these things are questions they're trying to answer. Everybody's wrestling with the answer to these things. Nothing the disciples said came to the full weight of, thus saith the Lord, Paul, you are to stay here or you are to go elsewhere. He somehow knew that going to Jerusalem would ultimately mean going to Rome, which was very strategic from the kingdom advancement perspective. So, what's the decision in the action? Verse fourteen, Luke speaking in the first person, and since or second person, I should say plural. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, "Let the will of the Lord be done." Isn't this really the the phrase for all of us as Christians? Let the the will of the Lord be done. We strive and we strain and we struggle with what is God's will and sometimes we come to the end of our ability to discern any further and we say, let the will of the Lord be done. May God's will be done. Since he would not be persuaded. That's also helpful to analyze. It doesn't say, since he decided to disobey or he was not going to listen to the word of the Lord. He, that's not what Paul or Luke says. He couldn't be persuaded. So there was an acknowledgement that they weren't exactly sure what God's will was Paul was determined, and we couldn't persuade him, so we ceased, and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. They were coming to rest with the fact that it may be God's will that he goes and dies. Now, this isn't a knee-jerk response by Paul at any moment. He's not just saying, I'm going no matter what, forget it, I don't want to hear from you. He just is determined through a process of discernment that predates most of the people even engaging with him here that it is the will of the Lord, and even through the discernment process, Those people who love him, they never rise to the level of saying, it's a sin if you do this. You should not do this. God says don't do this. Instead, they come through that process to a peace about what God's will may be. And it may not be what they desire. Do you see all that's gone into this, though? Time taken, people consulted, prayer, uh, a sense about what God's calling him to do personally. All of this in the discernment process to discern what God's will is and then know he'll give the ability to carry it out. That's what we see on full display in the episode with Paul. So Paul moves Jerusalemward. Verse 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Now, we've walked through this transition between Ephesus, now onward to Jerusalem. And we've observed just a bit this process that completes with Paul finally deciding it's the will of God to go to Jerusalem. And I would like for us to draw some principles. So I would like to give you five different principles for making decisions, big decisions especially, that we can draw from the overall teaching of Scripture and especially what we've seen here on display, at least as an illustration of this. Now first, not explicit in this passage, but understood. Paul is a man who is walking with the Lord and he's in fellowship with God's people. So in making decisions, you make your best decision when you're in that place. When you are walking with the Lord, you're trusting in him and his means of grace, and you're in fellowship with his people. So first and foremost, put it this way, be in constant communion with the Lord. Be spiritually acting and active when you're making decisions. Um, Utilizing his means of grace. Are you in his word? Are you... Presenting your desires to God for those things agreeable to his will, which is prayer. Are you availing yourselves of the ways you can grow spiritually and be strong? Paul was in a strong spiritual state. The worst time to make a big decision is when you've been detached from regular fellowship with God. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you know what I mean. You haven't been reading the Bible, you have not been worshiping or making it a priority to be with other believers so that you're thinking the way God would have you think in terms of the world through the lens of the scriptures. When you get out of that, you get confused very quickly because there's so many messages out there and that's the worst time to make a big decision. We shouldn't take the first step for granted, be in communion with the Lord, growing in the Lord, in connection to his word, the sacraments and prayer, just to put it simplest. We lose our spiritual discernment when we're not growing spiritually, and that's when we are prone to make bad decisions that become spiritually damaging. For instance, a decision to get married when you are not spiritually strong is almost always disastrous. A decision to take a different job when you are not spiritually minded about money or prestige can be a huge mistake, no matter how much you think you're going to give to the church. Second thing that we can learn or should consider about making decisions. First, be in communion with the Lord, but also secondly, and I alluded to this, but I want to express it more now, be in communion with God's people, with other spirit-filled people who believe the gospel, trust in his word, and will give you the straight up when you need it. They'll see through the things you might um, have coloring your view, and they love you, and they'll tell you the truth. That's what Paul had. All these people, they loved him. They cared for him and would tell him what they thought. Now, they were driven... Largely by wanting Paul for themselves, but these are people who love him and had his interest in mind as well. This is where communion with other believers, this is where you will have access to the counsel that you need to discern your understanding of the word and to interpret the situation objectively. I think the best place for counsel is among godly people. That's what God gives you your church family for and your Christian friends. That's your best starting point. Now, if you're younger, you should start with your parents. If your parents are believers, talk to them first. If you're older and you have godly parents, go to them also. Now, I'm not saying that unbelievers can't help you discern or make decisions, but most of your decision-making influence should come from people who look at things from the same perspective of God's glory first and the honor of Christ first. People under the word with regularity will give you the best guidance. You know, an unwillingness to have your situation spiritually scrutinized by other people, is almost always a sign that you've already decided what God's will is for God, when you just won't bring it up with somebody else because they're not going to tell you what you want to hear. Good Christian brothers and sisters will ask you the hard questions about why you may want to decide one way or the other. They may say something like, well, how will this impact your walk with Christ, going back to the first point? Um, How will this impact your family, those you're responsible for, you're uh, engaged in their life and in their growth? How does this relate to your desires, your aspirations? Are those desires and aspirations spiritually focused? Because big decisions we can make can have a ripple effect for years and we don't live that long. So decisions made when we're 19 and 20, for instance, they can have massive impacts on what's happening when we're 40 or 50. So the more you have in counsel around you, the better this will be. Faithful brothers and sisters will ask you the hard questions that you may be avoiding. Third, Pray concerning the decision. All throughout the process, stop and just bring it to the Lord. Lord, guide me that your will may be done. Guide me with this decision. Guide me with the way I'm thinking about this. Help me to know what it is you want me to do. Prayer is simply offering up the things that you desire for those things that are agreeable with his will. And the more you pray, a process happens where sometimes your prayer changes because it becomes clear it's not God's will what you're praying for. In other times, God makes clear it is, and it comes to pass. And it's a process. It's a discernment process, a bit of a wrestling match that we go through. Remember the vivid picture of Paul and his dear brothers and sisters going before the Lord in prayer to seek his will in verse five. When our days were ended, we departed on our journey. Everybody got together, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Think about what God's will is. Wrestle with discerning God's will. Talk to others about what they think God's will might be in this situation. And always pray to God about his will. Fourth, when making a big decision, don't rush the decision if you can help it. Sometimes you have to make a big decision. At that point, you hope that enough of the other points, being in close communion with the Lord and with others, will help bolster you at that moment if you have to make a fast decision. But most of the time, and the big ones, we have some time. More than we'll acknowledge. Usually, desire to make a fast decision on something that doesn't require it means, again, we've kind of decided God's will for him, and that's dangerous. Don't rush the decision. Paul made his decision about Jerusalem over the course of years. He was in Ephesus for three years. At the beginning of his ministry in Ephesus, he first mentions that he thinks God's directing him to Jerusalem. Yes, his disciples did not want him to go, but not for sin reasons. Their decision was actually for their good, really. They didn't want to lose Paul. Over the course of Wrestling with this and discussing and praying concerning it, it became clear what God's will was, despite how they felt about it at the moment. That process even helped his disciples to support what God's will was ultimately. Most of your decisions will not require an immediate response. You'll have some time, take as much time as you can, and is as reasonable to work through these steps for discernment. Finally, though, take action. Once you've walked through this process, You've sought God's will. You've sought out counsel from others, from many people. You've prayed about it, considered it, discussed it. It's time to then act. And that's what we see Paul finally ready to do. In verse 13, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. His contentment about that set them at ease with what God's will was apparently Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And he went to Jerusalem. So, wrapping around, thinking uh, how this related to even how things worked out in mine and Sherry's situation. I think there are multiple choices we could have made that wouldn't have been wrong and the Lord could have guided us and directed those. I think God's ultimately sovereign so I think the plan that played out is exactly what he ordained. But in the here and the now, the way we live it, you'll be faced with various things and not that one decision would be right or wrong. But I am amazed by how things do work out in a process that seems haphazard to us or it seems fraught with all sorts of decisions that that are tainted or you never really trust yourself. Like when I'm seeking the Lord's will, I never really trust my motives completely. I always think there's something I'm doing for myself in all this. It could look to everybody else like I'm following the Lord's will and I'm this great man of God and reality inside I'm thinking, what what could I get out of this? And that alone makes me nervous about any decisions I make. So even with people uh, that you're discerning with, I could be fearful that I'd still press my own will on this thing. In all along those early years uh, in discerning what we were supposed to do, I remember feeling worried about that in that way. Yet so many careful people were speaking into our lives, including our parents, who didn't always have exactly the same timetable as we did. But the Lord worked through that process. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm in Kansas, in Wichita, Kansas. And I'm like, there's tornadoes around this place. In fact, the first week I'm there, there's a tornado watch. And I'm in, I have a cat, and I'm in a storm shelter with my cat in Kansas because a twister's coming a mile away from us. What am I doing in Kansas? This makes no sense at all. I got to get out of here as fast as I possibly can. Lord, is this your will to be done that I be in Wichita, Kansas right now? I mean, I just could not put it together in my mind. I could not count the days fast enough to get out of Kansas. And so we went. I remember picking up, uh, getting our U-Haul. Side note, I came to Kansas in a a Dodge Omni with everything I own. When I left Kansas, after two years of marriage, I had a full U-Haul and a trailer and a car. Not my stuff. At any rate, so we're driving along heading off to St. Louis, and I'm like, goodbye. I mean, I see Kansas in the rearview mirror on my way to St. Louis as we hit the arch, and I go to seminary there, there. but then I realized, I mean, I knew this, but it didn't really dawn on me. I'm under care of the Heartland Presbytery now. When I was in Kansas for those two years in Wichita, I joined a church, Evangel Presbyterian, And the pastor there, was just started there, Um, he took me under his wing, and he was a great mentor to me. And he had me come under care of the Heartland Presbytery as I went off to seminary. I didn't completely know what that meant, but guess what? That means I've got to come back a couple times a year to Kansas to check into the Heartland Presbytery. So here I am driving back from St. Louis to come to Kansas uh, to check in with the guys so I can make sure that I follow the right track to get licensed and ordained. And I wanted to get licensed and ordained far from here. That was my thought. One of the times I'm here, 1997, the, the pastor at the time, I t- I let me go back. 1993, this is when we got there. That's the first Presbyterian meeting I went to. I was trying to see if this is uh, the denomination I should join, and so I was there. Mike Milton, who planted the church, was at that presbytery meeting before they had ever had a meeting of the church or right around that time, and he's telling everyone of his plans for a church in Overland Park. I have no idea where Overland Park is, but he's talking about this church that so would be a parish church model, and I perked up because I was always a bit more conservative than most of the guys that were coming through at that time, and I always liked in my mind the concept of a parish church with a school and a more traditional model church, a liturgy, kind of what you see, Right? And so he's talking about this, and I'm like, who's this guy? Like, I'm looking for people to laugh because in 93, that's the phase when everyone was moving away from denominations. They were taking Presbyterian out of the names of the churches. Denominations were on the out. Worship bands were all the rage. Hymns and hymnals that's ancient, that's dinosaur. You can't grow a church like that. No one will come to the church. And I remember Milton standing up there telling everybody his big ideas. I'm like, how can this guy, this guy's at least entertaining. So I remember listening to him, and he was. When you heard him in the early days, people are here early. That's how Mike thought. That's 93. 94 comes around, and he's back giving a bit of his explanation, but I'm onward and outward to Kansas or to, to St. Louis to go to seminary. So '97, I realize I've got to go back and check into Presbytery to let him know what I'm doing, because I have to start looking for a church I might go to out of seminary when I graduated in '98. So I come back, and I'm in Wichita, where the presbytery was, and Mark Merritt, who was the pastor at that time, is telling everyone in the presbytery that Mike had just left to go back and be like the interim president at Knox Seminary. But they had started this church, bought this land, and they were basically gutting a house to start worship there. And I remembered back to when Mike talked about it, and they had a school with nine students in it meeting in the garage. I'm like, these people, I mean, this is, I love this. This is unreal that they would do this. But no, I mean, I hope they find an intern, is what I thought. And Mark said, hey, didn't I hear you say that your wife's a school teacher? Yes. So is she not working the summer? And he started telling me about this opportunity and all the things I'd be able to do if I came that summer. And because she was a school teacher, she did have those summers off. So they didn't just hire me, they hired Sherry too. And we together were interns for the summer and did all the youth ministry stuff. I was preaching, I was teaching Sunday school. I was in on everything they were deciding. They were just deciding to buy the other 10 acres at that time. Uh, I mean, all this stuff in the early stages, I was just learning so much about this whole vision And that was 1997. At that point, I'm like, I don't ever want to leave this place. That was my feeling about it when when we discovered what their vision was and what they wanted to do. And so after that summer, they asked me to come back regular and be the assistant pastor and so forth. And that was 22 years ago. Now, I say in the process of discernment, there were so many doubts and fears and wonders, even desires on my part that weren't understood. Like, I don't want to go to Kansas. I honestly can't imagine being anywhere else. I've never wanted to be somewhere else. Now, I'm submissive to the Lord, of the, the will of the Lord, and this isn't about me at all. I'm just saying that I've watched God work in this kind of process and all the little details about where she would go to school, where we connected in church, how these things come together, we think they're haphazard when they're happening, when we're discerning God's will. But in reality, these are all orchestrated by God to direct us in a certain way. And we make mistakes along the way. I'm not saying like I followed those five steps, you know, like I described, like every day I'm thinking, well, we need to go to step three now and discern more. But the Lord worked those out in our life. And I would just say to you as you face decisions, slow down and ask yourself, Am I walking closely with the Lord to make a big decision right now? If not, I need to, to grow in that area before I jump at something or make some decision I will regret. Am I connected with other believers who I can lean upon to help me a bit? Uh, am I constantly going to God about this so that his perspective is my perspective on this? Am I concerned, am I thinking through uh, what action would look like while taking time at the same, at the same moment? All of these things work together, I think, to help us make better decisions. And I know I've witnessed that in our, in our life, in our ministry together. And so much wrestling has happened with God over these last really 27 years when I think back to when we were deciding whether God was calling us to even be married and go into ministry together. There comes a point once you've seriously engaged in a discernment process like the one that we've seen here in Paul in the book of Acts that you can say with Luke and the disciples, after these days... We got ready and went up to go to Jerusalem. But let the will of the Lord be done. May God's will be done. That's our desire. That's what will lead us to the most joy and the greatest glory for God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am sure there are several here this morning faced with decisions that they want to know your will concerning. May this exposure to Paul's process of discernment and our attending considerations, give them guidance so that they may honor you with whatever they decide. Lord, in the final analysis, it is our desire that your will be done. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnals to 534. We'll stand and we will sing, Oh, for a closer walk with God, verse 1 and verse 2, and the elders will come to prepare the table.